Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Apparently it took 100,000 men 20 years to build the Great Pyramid at Giza. That's nothing. When I was growing up in North Leitrim, we were expected to turn out a couple of hundred pyramids of turf a day, on a good day in the bog. Admittedly, our turf pyramids, or footings, might not have been on the Egyptian scale, but for our pharaoh father, they were every bit as significant. A man for whom finesse was not just a foreign word, but a foreign concept. My father nonetheless found craft in the creation of a footing. In most other facets of my father's life, good enough was good enough, except when it came to turf. Each footing merited close attention. The ideal, a balance of substance and style that paid due homage to these foot soldiers, sods a turf, who would, come winter, sustain our lives by giving theirs. Each peat pyramid promised their passage to the heavens. Holy smoke, they would not burn in vain. Short-term pain for long-term gain was my father's philosophy. When our groans grew long in the evening shadows, he lobbed encouragement our way as he once lobbed fresh-cut sods from the schlan. Think of the fire on a cold winter's night, he would roar. And I would. We spent a lot of time in front of our sitting-room hearth. A magnificent cut stone mantle was placed over it around 1981, when I was six years old. It was ten foot long, two high, one deep. It was a feat of brute strength that negotiated it into place, my father, brothers and some neighbours all contributing. The fireplace was framed by an old wrought iron mount on which we'd rest our heels on a winter's night to warm our welly cold feet, the steam rising from them. The returning blood to our toes felt like it was boiling, but it hurt so good. The memory brings a glow to my inner embers. I dig deep for my first recollections of the bog, extracting them from under the sphagnum moss of my memory bank. They haven't seen the light of day for many's a year, but they are preserved, fossilised. I lay them out on the spread to acclimatise, crystallise. I form them into a clamp from which I can build a story. They take me back to the days when squadrons of iridescent dragonflies flew recon missions amongst us interlopers prehistoric drones surveying their patch of turf. The bog cotton, mirroring the cumulus clouds overhead, dancing a chorus in the warm May breeze. It is cutting season, and Dad and my older brothers, nigh on twenty years my senior, are preparing the bank by stripping its upper crust of heather, roots and poor brown peat. Once the black gold is revealed, they begin cutting. I see two men and spades working in unison, my father and his sons, pistons of peat production rotating throughout the day. Fresh sods are delivered from the turf spade like newborn bog babies. The recipients handle them with the care of a midwife. The girls and us cubs are responsible for distributing them across the upper bank for drying, their sides stigmata pierced by the fingers of the grapes and divine favour. I wander off for periods of exploration and adventure. With young bucks about the bog, 
Mud battles are as inevitable as snowball fights after a fall of the white stuff. The smack of a well-fashioned ball of wet peat against one's intended target is a joyous thing. I experience transcendental joy too, lying belly down in the heather, my head hanging over the edge of a bog hole, watching while the waltzing water skaters mesmerise my mind and the dragonflies carry me otherwhere. The food ready, we gather and feast on eggs boiled in bog water, with salad greens, scallions and soda bread, and mugs of strong tea poured from Bushmills bottles. Standing up I see my world before me. Our family of twelve siblings, generations and worlds apart, bound together by love, blood and dirt. The patriarch, in his preferred place and plain, on the bog with his clan orbiting around him. The matriarch, quietly minding, nurturing, giving, as generous as the bog itself. The older boys taken up the mantle. The five sisters are talus women, turning twelve into one dozen. The three youngest cubs finding our feet, fearless thanks to the scaffolding all around us sequestered from the world's mad march of progress on a sound footing. Now take Leo Hallisey, for example. He's a bog man. He's a bog man. I'm a bogman. I'm a bogman. So many people look at the bog as a place that just lies dead. The day I applied for a bursary from the Arts Council, I also entered a 10-day retreat to learn Vipassana. I was in my mid-twenties and a series of events had dragged me back to my parents' spare room, surplus among the toe-stubbing blanket boxes and childhood famous fives. Vipassana, a school of secular meditation, was suggested to me as one of several balms for what I call depression, but think of now as a crushing crisis of existential origin. Nothing about my life as an adult made sense to me. On that day, before surrendering my phone and all connections to the outside, before signing a contract to say I would not speak or eat after midday or kill a living thing, I came and went from the laptop. At the moment I needed to leave, I hit submit. The process had a ritual feel. Months earlier, I had been walking down Henry Street when suddenly my misery thickened into panic and abandoning plans, I rode the bus to my house share and stood in the bedroom as sunlight sliced through the Venetian blind. I knew I should sit, but I couldn't sit. As I stood, frozen with dread, My ambient unhappiness seemed to speak to me. It said, nothing will ever be good for you. What I recall now are the bars of sunlight on the tossed-up bed, how radiant was the world, even in, or perhaps because of, this suffering like a pounding soundtrack. After submit on the day of the application, I was dropped to an off-season boarding school and sat in the canteen among cheerful people who all seemed to know each other. I answered questions from a clipboard. Did I have experience of psychosis? 
could I commit to the mental stress? An attractive man with heavy affect, an aura of sorrow at odds with his looks, asked me a few more. I was afraid I mightn't pass, because I was so citified and nervy and ill-fed. The others seemed insanely sedate. When the first gong went, we fell silent. We would stay that way for over a week. During those ten days, I didn't think about the book I was planning to write, but since then I have gone back again and again to a constellation of smells and images. Avoiding eyes and not speaking while staying close to people, sleeping in a dorm next to strangers, was intimate. I came to approximate a St Francis banality, listening for birds and differentiating between everything, noting the achingly detailed textures of grass and trees and pebble dash. The meditation sessions were anguish, both because sitting in lotus caused my legs to throb and because my addiction to sugar meant abstaining amounted to withdrawal. At six in the morning, after a monkish two-hour session of meditation, the smell of prunes stewed for porridge would derange me. Every day was downhill after the prunes. Afternoons in particular were long and entirely static. The buzz of distant farm machinery or traffic carried only to be flattened against the monumentally collaborative silence we sustained. At intervals we listened to recordings of our Vipassana teacher, S.N. Goenka, explaining the technique. We attended to a motto often, work patiently and persistently and you are bound to be successful. In the recordings, Goenka repeats the last part with especially sweet goodwill, bound to be successful. I fought the silence. My head churned with violent stupidity. I became amazed at my own regrets and grudges and limitations, which all seemed mortifyingly petty, and by the earworms that curled into my head. CD B-sides from the noughties, Salisbury Hill. One day the rage reached a pitch so intense my ears popped, blood rushed to my head. I broke out of the Dama Hall to charge round the playing field mouthing screams. Someone came outside to beckon me back. You were not supposed to use the course for personal transformation. It was study. But I did, because I am selfishly eccentric and addicted to sugar, and never, ever going to calm down. I emerged from Vipassana in a state of exquisite tenderness, torn apart by the first radio jingle I heard. But the stillness I'd accessed remained with me for a long time afterwards. I can still climb into it now, like zipping up a warm tent. I didn't get better at once, but I was never so unwell again. And then, shortly afterwards, I was awarded the bursary. It set me materially free. I moved out and into a happier house share and cleared out a rickety workspace and pinned a handwritten note at eye level. Work patiently and persistently and you are bound to be successful. It is a simple sentiment which, on examination, asks for committed effort. Patience and persistence can feel like little sneaking motions in the greater face of pain or loss or indifference or cruelty or loneliness. But they can work, frame by frame, row by row, if lightened with a little grace. I feel now like I asked for something and it was delivered, however indirectly, to me. I cannot help but feel that I owe something back.
My father came from Ballybricken. That was an important thing to be able to say in Waterford. It meant that you came from the very heart of the ancient city, designated Herbs Intacta by Henry VIII, with its long connections to livestock fairs, pig dealing, John Redmond and the Irish Parliamentary Party. When, in 1891, Redmond ran for election as MP for Waterford, it was to Ballybricken, the summit of the city, he came, and it was the Ballybricken pig buyers who put him in. Redmond, the pivotal political figure in Irish politics for two decades, remained MP for Waterford until his death in 1918. As a child, I was a frequent visitor to my grandmother's home in Barker Street, Ballybricken. This terraced house was where my father had grown up, and from where his father had conducted his political as well as his pig-buying business. My grandfather had been John Redmond's election agent, and on Christmas Day 1916, when my father was born, he was named for the great man, who subsequently stood as his godfather. The long, narrow back gardens of the houses on Barker Street ran down to a retaining buttress. From the rear of the house, the River Shore was visible. At the front door, one looked directly across to the high wall of what had once been Ballybricken Jail. Next door lived Annie Brophy, the renowned photographer. Everyone in our family, at some stage, had had their photograph taken by Annie, whose tiny studio stood in her back garden. Annie was the only female professional photographer in Waterford, and possibly in Ireland at the time. She was still going strong in the mid-1970s, and today, 50 years later, her celebrated archive of photographs, stretching back to the early years of the state, are an important part of Ireland's photographic heritage. Across the road, at the corner of Barker Street and Jail Street, stood Jack Powers Forge. When my pony needed to be shod, I brought her down John's Hill, up into Ballybricken, and down Jail Street, to Powers Forge. Even with no pony to shoe, I spent hours in the forge as Jack, elderly by then, his hat pulled low and a pipe in his mouth, watched Petey Power, his sturdy son, fetch out from the furnace gleaming bars of hot iron and beat them with ringing blows into the shape of horseshoes on the anvil. Jack Power's forge had enjoyed brief fame in 1930 during the search for Larry Griffin, the famous missing postman. Larry had disappeared on Christmas Day 1929 while delivering post in the tiny County Waterford coastal village of Stradbally. An altercation involving drink and money was suspected, but not one person came forward to say what had become of the postman. As media gathered from all over Ireland and beyond to witness the attempts to find Larry Griffin's body, the case became a test for the fledgling Free State's authority. A bogland near Kilmac Thomas was identified as a likely place to find the corpse. Long iron staves were ordered up from Jack Power's forge and handed out to dozens of policemen who were then sent into the bog. Nothing was found and the omerta surrounding the postman's disappearance continued. 
busloads of sightseers came out to the Waterford coast to watch as the disused copper mine shafts were drained by experts brought in from England. The audiences, numbering hundreds, were disappointed when only dead sheep were dragged up. In a dramatic development in January 1930, ten inhabitants of Stradbally, including one entire family, were arrested, incarcerated in the jail in Ballybricken, and charged with the murder of the postman. None of the accused broke their silence, as the subsequent trial became a national sensation. The defendants were eventually acquitted, and Larry Griffin, the missing postman, became the enigma he remains today. On weekdays during Lent, I went with my father to early Mass in the cathedral, following which we drove up Patrick Street, past the site of the jail, which had closed in 1939, across the hill of Ballybricken, and down into the Glen. There, in a tiny house, Mrs Roach had been working since three that morning, baking blahs. We drove home at speed with our flowery blahs so that we could eat them warm for breakfast. The blah, made with white flour, water, salt and yeast, is said to have been first baked in Waterford in the 18th century by Huguenot immigrants, refugees from religious persecution in their native France. These Frenchmen called their white flour bread bun Le Blanc, which over time in Waterford mouths became the Blah. My grandmother advised the Blah, which has a short shelf life, should be cut in two horizontally, the soft, doughy bits removed and the hot crusts buttered on the inside. She purchased her blahs every morning in Ballybricken on her way home from six o'clock mass. Today these connections to Ballybricken's livestock fairs, pig dealers, Westminster politics, Jack Power's forge and the missing postman are mere footnotes to Waterford's long history. But in 2013, the venerable Waterford Blah secured its permanent place on the world stage when it joined Champagne, Chianti, Parmesan cheese, Cornish pasty and an elite cast of others in being granted protected geographical indication status by the European Union. Which means, by that if your Blah wasn't baked in Ballybricken, it's probably not a Blah at all. child's sandal lies in the middle of the motorway. It feels so out of place, particularly in this part of the world, I find myself wondering how it got there. I'm on the Turkish side of a mountain border with Bulgaria. The motorway is brand new but it's deserted, apart that is from big trucks and the odd military jeep on border patrol. It cuts through a vast mountain range known as the Strania which stretches across Bulgaria and Turkey in what was the ancient province of Thrace. 
the industrious Thracians never bothered with the chore of nation-building. They came, they saw, they got swallowed up by the Ottomans. But the Strania retains its own air of mystery. Sparsely populated, it sprawls for over 10,000 square kilometres of lush vegetation. It also brings together not two, but three countries, Bulgaria, Turkey and Greece, which puts the Strania in an unusual position. It has become a backdoor crossing from Asia, well worn as a route into the European Union, pathway for a bustling people trafficking business. The forest has always been a nexus of geography and politics. Even during the Cold War, East Germans used it as cover to flee to the West. It was the easiest way, or so they thought. Their general plan was to travel to Bulgaria as tourists, to the Black Sea resort of Burgas. Then they'd take a day trip down the coast to the village of Resnovo, from which Turkey is tantalisingly just a river's width away. Under cover of darkness they would try a boat or even swim across, or they could simply hike through the Strania and climb a border fence into Turkey to claim political asylum in West Germany. Tragically for many, it didn't work out that way. In a little-told subplot of the Cold War, it was a mistake that cost the lives of hundreds of East Germans. A largely unknown story of brutality and heartbreak, assiduously detailed by Bulgarian author Kapke Kasabova in her study Borders. And so I set off for Resnovo, where the vast majority of hapless escapees met their fate. Driving along the Black Sea, the road narrows and dips into forest. The ground swallowed up before dropping back to sea level. This corner of Bulgaria is actually the most southeasterly point in the EU. And if Resnovo feels like the end of the road, it's probably because it is. Many escapees were shot on sight. Their deaths reported as holiday accidents. Some were never found. Others were arrested, tortured and returned to East Germany for interrogation and prison. Some of the survivors recall being savaged by attack dogs, their hopes of escape brutally ended by border guards incentivized by a bonus-for-capture system that made them staunch defenders of the Iron Curtain. Then, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and East Germans no longer had to dream up madcap plans about swimming to freedom. Traces of the old border remain. Picking my way through overgrowth in sultry heat, I find a rusty old fence that was once electrified. Above me, faded warnings of forest snakes. No man's land has been retaken by nature. Ramshackle security huts creak in dilapidation, woodwormed chairs and desks flossed with cobwebs. A rusting red and white pole, once a customs checkpoint, no longer bars the way but points upwards, without purpose, into a silent and cloudless sky. The old huts have been replaced by newer quarters, but for Bulgarian border guards the biggest change is which direction to look. When defending the Iron Curtain, their main job was to stop their own people getting out. Ever since 2007, when Bulgaria joined the EU, the guard's sole function is to stop outsiders 
getting in. That's why we're here, said a friendly border guard with good English and a slight stammer. We stop people coming across from Turkey every day. Regarding its southeastern flank as a weak point, the EU set up a number of detention camps in these parts. Some of them are open centres for refugees. Others look like high-security jails, holding Syrians, Afghans, Iraqis, Moroccans, Somalis and Pakistanis. Visiting journalists are not welcome. People trafficking is a lucrative business run at great profit. Looking out over the Strania, I wondered how many groups and individuals were cowering beneath its green canopy at that very moment, forced to scurry across the newly minted motorway like nocturnal animals. It brought home to me the easy fortune of my own passport, which makes destination a choice, not a gamble. Neither does it necessitate paying traffickers or require hiding in bushes to avoid military patrols which is why the sandal lying in the middle of the motorway is conspicuously out of place. It's a fair guess that it dropped from a tired child's foot in a panicked scramble for cover of forest, that the young wearer might have felt it loosen, that it had to be left where it fell before the strania swallowed up the group once again, propelling them forward in hope and desperation over wire fences towards a better life. The outcome of this particular journey for a child arriving with only one shoe, one of the many secrets absorbed in the great silence of the Thracian forest. I noticed the communion dress in the charity shop window and ventured in for a closer look. It was clearly a brand new garment with the original price tag for €300 Euro still attached. I wondered what story might lie behind the donated finery and hoped fate hadn't been brutal in robbing some child of her big day. As I touched the layers of mesh and the satin lining, I mentioned my observation to the assistant, a cheery Englishwoman. Who knows, dear, she sighed in the voice of one who had seen much. We both agreed that the dress with the sweetheart neckline and scallop-edged bodice was a steal at 20 euro and would be a find for some little girl. My own communion frock, worn in May 1966, was a find too, and not without its link to tragedy. My dress, with its ruffles and lace, little pearls and bows, had been sent for Malaysia the year before for a girl called Helen's son. Helen had come from Kuala Lumpur to live with her aunt following the death of her own mother. The aunt judged that her niece and I were the same size and offered the dress to my mother. I was conscious of the link to another girl's sorrow as I looked at myself in the mottled mirror on my communion day. 
I was aware too that I sported a dress from a foreign land, a confection of satin and lace like no other. Unrelenting rain deluged that communion day morning and threatened to drench the Malaysian finery to a sodden rag. The two-mile walk and that downpour to St Mary's Church would have ruined everything. We hoped to God that the vet or the doctor or anyone driving one of the rare cars on the road might by some miracle respond to our efforts to hail them down and offer a lift. It wasn't the vet or the doctor who saved the day, but the creamery manager, Mr O'Donovan. He must have been visiting one of the dairy farms when luck brought him our way. I was Cinderella, carried to a chariot that morning, so my white pumps didn't touch the cruel stream of rain that surged and bubbled. There was more good fortune to follow as Mr O'Donovan pressed not one but two half-crowns into my palm. Sister Cecilia, who directed me into my pew, wouldn't have been surprised to hear that I had travelled through the downpour in an actual chariot. Although we were very young children when we sang in her choir, we intuited her wistfulness as her beautiful soprano voice bid the Afton River to flow gently. That and her strange little Czech folk song about Andolko, the goose girl, had been set aside for the weeks when we practised the communion hymns. The sonorous soul of my saviour, with its note of warning about death's dread moments, was weighty stuff for seven-year-olds. I hoped that the moments that carried Sister Cecilia to whatever lies beyond were not dread-filled, but calm with the certainties of her childlike faith and soft heart. A trip to the photography studio behind Jerry Condon's pub in Church Street was next on the agenda. There, the snap that my father would store in the tin box would be taken. The photographer, Jimmy Johnson, a cadaverous figure in a navy shop coat, arranged my mother and me in front of the brocade drapes, the rusty brown fabric brightened with golden threads. He held the flash high as we steadied ourselves to concentrate on the big lens secured on the tripod. We watched the birdie, as Jimmy instructed, and wouldn't have been surprised if he conjured a flock of kingfishers out of the air. Although my purse was already heavy with Mr O'Donovan's two half-crowns, the neighbours we met on the walk home through the rain-fresh roads were generous with their sixpences and shillings. But the stop at Lizzie Ryan's house yielded unexpected bounty. I was used to Lizzie's regular gift of a twist of barley sugar from the spherical glass jar in Godfrey's chemist shop or soft Marietta biscuits from the tin she called a barrel. That day, however, she returned from the pantry with a few bars of chocolate in exotic packaging. The wrapper depicting a little Dutch girl with white blonde plaits standing in a field of glossy red tulips. I was charmed. I intuited a world beyond my Tipperary town that first communion day, a world that I might one day experience. I had, after all, worn a dress from Kuala Lumpur, travelled by chariot and eaten Dutch chocolate. Jimmy Johnson had still to perform magic in the dark room in Condon's pub as he developed the photograph of my mother and me 
watching the birdie and half expecting a flock of kingfishers. Was there no end to the wonder? Nightwood Light Watch the span of the year The weather sweeping in Deep and sudden clouds that shroud the land Mountains vanished, hills vanished, lakes and rivers one with sky. Water finding water, rain pouring, drenching, pelting, pissing, hurtling down, scattering woman, man, beast to shelter and awe. Thunder cracking off rock, lightning sizzling, forking blue and yellow, scorching trees, sparking old fears, buried deep in flesh memory. Rain, rain, rain soaking earth, sunburst after. Greenness, greener than ever, birds tentative in the high trees, frogs spawning from old wells, energies running deep in and out of the earth. Frost whitening the frilled edge of things, hedges and old roads, ruined stone, snow crowning the crooked edges of high ground. Wind that would raise the devil out of seven hells, swirling summer winds out of nowhere, wind in winter driving gouts of chill blackness. Light and its fading, winter darkness darker than ever remembered, saturated pitch, star-scattered vast, fading again to spring out of long solstice silence. Light, light, light lengthening out of nightwood into may and flower, white scent, Elder rose, spiders webbing, grave swans nesting in monastery reeds, ghost fish treading the river and lake waters. On this morning's programme we heard A Sound Footing by Colin Regan, Petition by Neve Campbell, Blas and Ballybricken was by Peter Cunningham, Secrets of the Strania by Frank Schuldeis, no End to the Wonder was by Margaret Galvin and Nightwood Light, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music was I'm a Bogman by Luca Bloom and that's from the album Let Loose in Letterfrack, music from the Connemara Bog and Sea Weeks. Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. The Waterford Song by Bridget May Power. Schumann's Forest Scenes 7, The Prophet Bird, played on piano by Tom Poster and Andulco Medite by Puzensky Lidovisober. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Condon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And Margaret Galvin's new collection of poetry and prose, Our House, Delirious, has just been published by Revival Press. Take a look at limerickwriterscentre.com for more on that. And if you'd like to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or the website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can find out more about this and other arts and culture programmes on the website to rte.ie forward slash culture.
Follow us as well on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.